turn again to 2 Timothy and the opening verses. Look at verse 5 tonight, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5. I've been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives in you also. Well, surely everyone here is interested in knowing the nature of genuine and sincere faith. And we would say, surely everyone would say, if there is such an entity, real faith, genuine, sincere faith, let me have it. Well, I want to explain to you what it is. Tonight, that's why you've come here and that's why I've prepared this word for you. Something seems to have occurred in Paul's mind. Maybe the memory of Timothy's tears and they had triggered off just how sincere was Timothy's faith in God and how that faith had come into him and lived in him. You notice how Paul says that recently he'd been reminded of it. Well, what was it? And Paul steps back then and and thinks of the, the germination, the gestation of this faith, how it came about in Timothy's life. And so the first point I want you to see is that this faith had first lived in his grandmother and then also in his mother. In other words, this wasn't a a very private faith, a very precious thing, but I can't share it with you. I have my own personal faith. It, It wasn't like that. It wasn't a faith which just a great preacher like Timothy had, and uh, like the, the men we hear of in the past, uh, the great champions of the faith in the last 2,000 years, that they had it. But this faith that uh, Timothy had, it had also been in his grandmother, in Lois, and in his mother, Eunice. And it's the faith that everyone here has. No special faith, saving faith that that I have or anyone in the millions of churches around the world which tonight have congregations of people that are doing what we do, uh, what God requires of us, sing to one another in hymns and uh, spiritual songs and read the word of God and, and pray and hear the word of God preached. I suppose that by the time Timothy got this letter, he was in his 30s. He was a, a, a pastor. And so his, his mother then, uh, Eunice would have been in her 50s, say. And Lois, his grandmother, would have been in her 70s. It's lovely to see their names mentioned here. This, this letter, I think there are two dozen names of people. Um, we get older and we forget names, you know, in our shame and fainting faculties. But, but Paul, when he writes to the Romans that last chapter, the scores of names that's there in Romans 16 and, and here in this letter, the last letter, there's name after name that he mentions to us. So we gather that um, the religious history and background of Timothy was something like this. Uh, About 30 years earlier, his granny, Granny Lois, had heard the gospel and had believed it, had believed into the Lord Jesus Christ. It was first in her. And then her daughter Eunice, around that time, was engaged or betrothed and married a Greek. She might have even been married and was in the early stages of, uh, of pregnancy. And Lois then, her mother, full of new faith in Jesus Christ, 
Then uh, she helped her daughter. And she brought her to church with her and explained the gospel. And so Eunice and Lois, they both became believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. They went to church together. And soon then there were three of them. Baby Timothy, he was taken along to church too. So that by the time he was able to think and articulate and speak for himself, he was being taught about the life and the works of Jesus Christ, that he was God's prophet and God's priest and God's king. And uh, he was shown this in the lives of his mother and grandmother and encouraged himself to become a Christian. Now, this does happen. Generations. It does happen. It happened, of course, with the Hodges in Princeton. There was Charles Hodge and then his son, Archibald Alexander Hodge. He followed his father and was a great teacher of theology. And then his son, Caspar Wister Hodge, Jr. Um, he was the third Hodge, and John Murray taught with him at, uh, at Princeton Seminary. Or you have then, um, in the Salvation Army, uh, you, you have... Uh, the Booths, General Booth, and then his son led it, and then his son, and Catherine, um, an eminent family of Christians in three generations. And then, of course, you have it in the Hudson Taylors, don't you? Um, the three generations of Hudson Taylors that led uh, the China Inland Mission, the father was a zealous evangelist and judge planter, and the son was, and the grandson was, and uh, it remained like that. So, that happens. And so he went along to church with his mother and grandmother. The first day of the week, his friends would hang around together, but they knew he wouldn't be with them on that first day of the week because he was occupied on that day going to church with his, his parents. He might have invited his friends as he grew up to come along with him, come to the youth meetings, come to the Sunday school. And he would talk to them about his faith. From a child, he had known the scriptures, which are able to make us wise. Not just religious, but they make us wise to be saved through Jesus Christ, our Lord. No, that was his experience. That was not the experience of the man who was writing to him here, of the Apostle Paul. He hadn't become a Christian through the influence of his mother or of his grandmother. We, we know scarcely anything about the um, background of Paul. We know he had a sister who was a believer, and that sister had influenced her son, and uh, he loved his uncle Paul, and there was a time when he overheard a group of Jews planning to assassinate Paul. And that they weren't going to eat or drink until they thrust their daggers into him. And uh, he had gone then and he had told the captain of the guard, the Roman guard. And they uh, took Paul away from that area and saved his life. And so we know that much about the family of Paul. But uh, we don't know anything more. We do not believe that... This saving faith was in his mother and in his grandmother. His personal faith came quite suddenly, didn't it? Through a tremendous supernatural encounter that he had with the risen Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, and he was never the same afterwards. Now, some of the people here, um, they know the day when they became Christians. Some of them do. Others of the people here who are Christians, real Christians, they're not sure of the year in which they became Christians. But with the Apostle Paul, there was a, a preparation, wasn't there? Remember what Jesus says to him, how hard it was for him to be kicking against the goads that were saying, what are you doing? You are stoning my servants. You are making them blaspheme. You are throwing them into prison. You think that's right? You think that's good? And every time he was involved, uh, he was telling himself, this is what a good Jew does. And yet he was saying to himself, this is not right. 
he was kicking against the goat. So there was preparation for the time when Jesus Christ came into his life and changed his life completely. My own way was really a mixture of, uh, of both of those, of Timothy's way and of, of Paul's way. My parents and grandparents were Christians, but also in the loneliness and isolation of my own discipleship, there came a, a time when I had to profess my faith when I had to confess with my lips what I believed in my heart, that Jesus Christ was my Lord and Savior. I came into assurance of salvation one Sunday night in March 1954 in a little chapel that no longer stands in the uh, South Wales Valleys in a place called Hengoid. It was just an ordinary conversion. But really, I was conditioned to be trusting in Jesus, just as much as Timothy was by the influence of his grandmother and the influence of his mother through the prayers and uh, the encouragements and the pressures that these people in my background had brought to bear on me and had gone to God for when they knew I was born. We frequently told that much of our life depends on the accident of birth. Perhaps some of you are tempted to think that the only explanation for my believing in God is the fact that I was encouraged to do so as a little boy in my formative years. I don't, I don't think so. Um, of course, what I was unconsciously aware of was enormously powerful and important about Jesus Christ. But that was not the belief of my teachers. Um, It was not the belief of the boys in the grammar school I went to. There were probably a hundred boys in three classes of 33. uh, And uh, I suppose a handful, five or six out of that hundred, went to church on Sunday. And it was in the teeth of that general indifference and cynicism that I became increasingly convinced of the goodness of God and the grace of God. In fact, I believe that the the whole of history and civilization would be unintelligible to me if I did not have faith in God, its creator and sustainer. I would argue that unless God is back of everything, It's not possible to find meaning and purpose in anything. You know, I hear people saying, I read what they say. They say, you cannot answer the question, what is the meaning of life? That's that's what they say. There is no meaning of life. And I would say that if the universe has no meaning, then we should never have found out that it has no meaning. If there was no light in the universe, then no creatures would have eyes and we should never know it was dark. The very word dark would be without meaning. So I say that you cannot argue against the existence of God unless you take his existence for granted. Dr. Van Til would say, um, arguing about God's existence is like arguing about air. One man affirms air exists and another affirms that it doesn't exist. But as they debate the subject, they are both breathing in at the same time. So you might look at Timothy and how he came to faith. And you might think, well, it was the pressures that were brought to bear upon him by the life and beliefs of his beloved grandmother and his beloved mother. And so his faith was all a matter of heredity and environment. Well, I won't argue with you too violently about that. I would simply say to you, when I was a little boy, I prayed to God, and I trusted in Jesus, and I went to church, as I still do, 70 years later. And there's perfect harmony 
between my belief as a boy and my belief as an old man, simply because I believe that God himself has been the environment in which I've spent my three score years and ten. And he's been the goal set before me, to which my life has been directed every year, every Sunday. It's been pointed to the living God. And my mature years have been made intelligible to me because of the ideas that I had and the teaching I got when I was a little boy, when I went to Sunday school and when I read my first Christian books. I was conditioned to believe that certain things were very important. That Jesus of Nazareth was tremendously important. That his teaching was important. That his example was important. That his death was tremendously important. His resurrection, his salvation, his day was important. His book was important. His people were important. And they became And they still are all important to me. And what happened in the past, um, in the years uh, then from uh, the time of Noah through to the arrival of Jesus in in the Old Testament, that was a really important time for me. And the time when Jesus walked this earth and rose from the dead and poured out the Spirit on his people and they went everywhere preaching the gospel... That, to me, was a key time in the history of this planet. And that was so for Timothy and for many of you. Now, this same kind of methodology, a number of you who are not yet Christians, were conditioned not to believe in God. And not to believe that Jesus Christ was important. He was rather a marginal figure, uh, a sweetly admired figure, but in the shadows. You never heard the Bible read. You never went to church except for an occasional wedding and an occasional funeral. Your parents were indifferent to your absence from church, as my parents were very keen, didn't like me not going to church. Your parents influenced you, just like my parents influenced me. You has had no faith in the Lord Jesus. They didn't think it was important. And their whole life was saying to you all the time, it's not important to be following Jesus Christ. My parents thought it was enormously important. Now, do we understand one another? You cannot disprove God's existence And I cannot prove to you God's existence. You don't expect me to suddenly say, come and God comes here and I show God to you. If I were able to do that, he'd not be the God of Christianity. All you expect me to do today and every day is uh, to make the Christian faith as genuine, as real, as credible, as I can make it, to make sincere faith reasonable. And that's what I'm trying to do. I'm saying that it's reasonable that most of us have faith in God, though it might not be reasonable to you yet. But I'm claiming that it would be reasonable for you to think of Jesus Christ very deeply, And consider his life and his words and his actions and his living presence that he is the one who rose from the dead. That's what Timothy believed. And his mother and his grandmother before him and many of us here, that's our link over the centuries. Second thing I want you to consider is Why was Timothy's faith sincere and genuine? Why? And let me give you some reasons for that. Firstly, his faith was based on knowledge. That's why it was sincere and genuine. Suppose a stranger came on to you one day and you hardly knew him. And he said to you, um, I believe in Jakajuju. You ought to believe in him too. 
He wouldn't reply, sure, I really will. Thank you. You'd look at him with a blank and puzzled look on your face and you'd say, who in the world is Jakajuju? Before you believe in someone, you must know who that person is. If all a boy knows about Christ is that he is a swear word, then he cannot possibly have faith in him. Why should he believe in someone of whom he knows absolutely nothing? Any more than you and I can believe in this word I just made up, Jakajuju. So for a Christian faith to be sincere and for it to be genuine, it must come through some knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's my task. That's my task in season and out of season, Sundays and every day, to give to my hearers the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why the Gideons go to the university and put a Bible there, to the hospital, put a Bible in the drawers next to the bed, and go round the schools and give out their uh, crimson New Testaments. What do I have to say then to inform you about the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, I can say, no man ever spoke like Jesus Christ. You read the Beatitudes, you read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's Gospel, you read the discourses in in John's Gospel, you read the parables in Luke, like the parable of the prodigal son. You read of the claims that Jesus Christ made, that... uh, He was one with God. That he was the only way to God. That he was the truth. That he was the resurrection and the life. No politician in history ever made claims like that. Shakespeare never said anything as beautiful and majestic and relevant as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Here's no ordinary man. Here's a man of total integrity His words are loved today by rice farmers in China and by financiers in Wall Street in New York. He once said that wise men build on a strong foundation and that his own words were a magnificently strong foundation so that if all Aberystwyth and all of Wales came and jumped on this foundation, that foundation could cope. It wouldn't crack. It wouldn't disappear. It was impregnable. He's the rock of Gibraltar. And his strong words are words of truth and purity and love and kindness and generosity and compassion. He speaks with heavenly righteousness. No one else before or since has ever spoken like Jesus Christ. So you you want to know what I want to tell you about the words of Jesus And then again, I want to say to you, no one ever lived like Jesus Christ. His life backed up his words. And lip and deed were perfectly consistent in Christ. He brought blessing and comfort and peace and deep joy to people. His many miracles uh, confirmed his deity, his, his tenderness with women and children and troubled people showed The compassion of God. Mothers he never met gave in their children to hold and pray for. He liberated women from the abusive treatment of men. He discouraged the stoning of women 400 years before Muhammad. You read in the paper that on Wednesday in Pakistan a woman was stoned to death again. He rejected violence as a means of spreading his censure, his message centuries before Muhammad. No man ever lived a life that can match the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. No man ever died like Jesus Christ. While his life and his teaching provoked and angered the religious people of his day, why did they hate him? So much. They whipped him. They nailed him to a cross. They mocked him. Stood in front of him a couple of yards away and made fun of him. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross, they said. 
He was guilty of no crime. He'd not abused children or women. And yet they hung him up by nails through his hands and his feet. And when they did that, he prayed for them. He prayed that God would forgive them. Because they didn't know what they were doing. Jesus, the Savior of the world, was dying as a sacrifice for our sins that God requires without the shedding of blood. There's no remission that's required. That's the nature of God himself. He's the just one, dying for the unjust. Men and women like us to bring us to God in the agony of his crucifixion. He breathed out nothing but love. He didn't shout back at them and scream at them and said, you wait till my father gets hold of you. No one ever died like Christ. No one ever has been a blessing to the whole human race as Jesus Christ has been. His impact on history is not just the the effect of the uh, perpetuation of his memory. He rose from the dead. He lives He was seen. Forty days he ate and drank with them and spoke to them and answered their questions. The gospel is the greatest blessing the world has ever known. It's brought new life and love and peace. Christ has mended broken hearts, broken lives, broken marriages. He's given hope to those in despair. The great links, heavy links of chain that bind us to our past. Christ snaps those links. Through him the light of heaven is dispelled. Through the Middle East today, through prisons and concentration camps. And throughout North Korea, people that secretly meet there find life bearable because of him. All that is lastingly good and beautiful, life-enhancing and pure, it all comes from him. His living resurrection influence continues still wherever he's accepted and trusted and served. We saw on Tuesday night a report of uh, missionaries working in uh, certain countries in the Middle East and, and North Africa. They were working in the poorest countries, the lowest three countries as far as the poverty scale is concerned in all the world. And in all those countries, Christianity is violently opposed. Meeting together, as we are doing on a Sunday night like this, evangelism is punished by prison. Another religion has dominated for a thousand years those places. And those places are dominated today by illiteracy and poverty and corruption and ignorance and the abuse of women where he displays his healing power. Death and the curse are no no more. We sin. The wonderful influence that Jesus Christ has over families and over communities where his word is taught and believed. I'm saying to you then, assess by every test that you can devise Um, No other person, no other system of ethics, no other salvation achieves what the Lord Jesus Christ does. That is the knowledge, then, that we teach. We teach it from the pulpit. We teach it uh, on a Tuesday night when we gather for prayer. We teach it on a Friday night when uh, the young people meet. We teach it in In the Sunday school, it's taught in the books in the bookshop. The Christian Union teaches it at the university. And the more knowledge we have of him, the more intelligent our faith can be in him, the more firmly we can grasp him, because he's not like slippery soap then, uh, like a fish just out of water, but he's a person who will hold us back who when we put out a hand, he will put out his hand too, and he will grasp us as we grasp him. So I'm saying the first reason that Timothy's faith was sincere, and Lois's and Eunice's faith was also sincere, was because he had knowledge. His parents, his grandparents, his church, 
The Apostle Paul had taught him and taught him who Jesus is, what his states and offices were, why he came, what he did in his life. You've got to have knowledge to have sincere faith. Secondly, his faith was based on believing that that knowledge was true. Now, disbelief, that can be a very valuable commodity, can't it? Men phone you out of the blue and they say, we're having complaints about your computer. And uh, it really needs to be fixed. And uh, you say, write to me about it. And you hang up. A man calls and he's got a wonderful deal that he's offering you with some stocks. And he can quote 12% interest. And he speaks quietly and informally. And he calls you Hugh, and then you know he doesn't know you, and you are full of disbelief. You hear honest people saying, if someone offers you something that is too good to be true, it is because it is too good to be true. A man claims that he's speaking from your bank, and he wants you to change your deposit account. Disbelieve him. You warn your children not to heed the promises that strangers make if they get in a car with them at this time. Disbelief. But disbelief can also cut us off from things that are good and true and important. You know how people told Columbus that he was loony when he said that You could get to the east by sailing west. He claimed that the earth was round and his disbelievers all knew perfectly well that the earth is flat. And bystanders nearly died of laughter when those crazy Wright brothers said that they could fly because everyone knew God wanted human beings to soar no higher than you could jump. When Jesus acknowledged to people that he was the Christ... People said to him, he was a liar. And they expressed their disbelief with wads of spit and vicious slaps to the head. And these people were standing in the presence of the greatest man this world has ever seen, the loveliest of all beings, the incarnate God, the only Savior. But in their disbelief, they thought they knew better. So they erased him. Belief and disbelief are so important that our religion is often referred to as the Christian faith. For it is this faith that ties Eunice and Lois and Timothy and Paul and us together in the bonds of the gospel. This evening, it ties us to the Jesus who said, I am the truth. And faith is the means by which forgiveness and eternal life and fellowship with Christ are appropriated. We receive them by faith. So through genuine, sincere faith, we learn about Jesus. We learn, for example, that he is two natures, that he is divine and human, and that these two are perfect natures, indivisibly joined in one person. He's not schizophrenic. He never says we. He says, I say unto you. That he's three offices. That he is uh, the great teacher who has been coming into the world. God who in different ways spoke to our fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken unto us by his son. He teaches us. He tells us who we are. Why the world is in the mess. What lies after death. Who God is. What we must do to be saved. How we should live. He's the great prophet. He's uh, the priest who intercedes for us. Who pleads his death for us as the way we can be forgiven for our sins. He's the great sovereign king who keeps us and guards us and works things together for our good. He's arranged this meeting tonight. He put it in your heart that you should come here when your friend said, come along. He enabled you to agree and he's enabling you to listen and to understand the things that I am saying. Faith is first knowledge of him, and then it is a growing belief that what you are hearing about him is absolutely true. It's accepting the truth of the message. 
that the life and the teachings and the claims of the Lord Jesus are not fantasies or fairy tales or as the Bible says cunningly devised fables we accept the message as news and that is why um, you know they dress up quite self-consciously they they don't wear Bermuda shirts when they read the news they put on a tie and a jacket and they tell you of great events in the world of Russian aeroplanes blown out of the sky and everybody on board killed and they are sober when they speak the news to you and, and we try to do the very same good news of the creator who became created, the almighty who became dependent, the omnipotent one who became weak, who was born into this world by Mary and uh, lived a blameless and spotless life for 30 years in humble anonymity and now in, in a public ministry. Three years that transformed the history of the world. When he spoke, the winds and waves obeyed him. When King Canute spoke, the waves and tides did not obey him. And it's true. He lived a perfect life, the only one who's ever lived a perfect life. And it's true. He died as a sacrifice to make atonement for our sins because of God's requirements. And it's true. He rose from the grave. The sepulchre was empty. The clothes were there, but he wasn't there. And he appeared many times. And it's true. And he's coming again in power and great glory. And it's true. And he will be our judge. And we're all going to see him. And it's true. By faith, we believe that Jesus is alive. And the Savior of all who trust in him. And the message of the gospel is true. I don't know if you've ever seen The Wizard of Oz or you know the story. At the end of the yellow brick road then, um, Dorothy and her companions, the Tin Man and the, and the Lion, and they arrive at the castle of Oz and they're overstruck by the great and terrible Oz. And they hear his voice. It's a booming voice and it echoes around the citadel of, of the castle. But in the end, the stage props are removed and when they find whose voice it is, it's a little old guy in disguise. That's who it is. And he offers them help, but it's only the help that any human being can offer any other human being. The appearances were so deceiving. But the promise of the gospel, it, is, it goes the exact opposite way the gospel is ours in reverse. For the gospel tells us that this humble carpenter from a backwoods, one donkey village called Nazareth, seemingly helpless against Roman thugs who pinned him to a tree trunk. He is actually God coming in love to save us from the consequences of our unbelief and our guilt. And he saves us by his painful death uh, that the Lord of life is today powerfully at work. He has rolled up his sleeves and his muscles are rippling. And here he comes now to stretch out his hands. The, arm, the everlasting arms are there to lift us up, to deliver us from the despair of our unbelief. Saving faith is true. That's why you must believe it. There was a fellow in this congregation and he listened to me. Well, he must have been 20 years of age. So for most of his life he came, I suppose, when he was three and he stayed there. He was totally impervious and bored. And then uh, one summer he changed. And he came to me and he asked me to baptize him. So I said to him, uh, well, what message was it that you heard that changed you? 
And he said to me, I just saw that it was true. I suddenly saw that it was true. Come unto me and I will give you rest. And it was true. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and he rose again the third day. And it was true. I saw it and it was true. So, uh, sincere faith is first knowledge. You must have knowledge. And then you must be convinced that it is true. And then lastly, his faith showed itself. Timothy's faith showed itself in personal trust in Jesus Christ. Um, We believe the facts about Jesus Christ, that he was a historical person, not like Santa Claus. What he said and what he did, the, the, the records of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four different men, and uh, they're true. He existed in time and space on this planet. He breathed its air. The law of gravity held him down. So like it holds us down, we're not floating around like a, an airplane falling at the force of gravity. We, we are here, held down. He was born of the Virgin Mary, and he suffered under Pontius Pilate, the confession says. He was crucified, dead, and buried, and the third day he rose again from the dead. But I'm moving you on from that. Now, those are facts. God is moving you on. You understand, you understand the difference and how it's important, not simply believing the facts about him, but trusting right into him. We believe that God exists, that this wonderful and complex universe didn't come about by luck. Or by chance. But that belief is not enough to make us Christians. Even the devils believe that God is, James says. And they shudder at the thought. It's no fun being a demon. Besides believing that God exists, besides that, we have to believe into God. We have to believe Upon God. We have to trust in God. To believe in a person is to trust him. To to depend on him. To stand alongside him. To put our arms through him and be in solidarity with him. Because we, we completely trust in him. When uh, Christians were put in the stocks to be... Have stones and dead cats and manure thrown at them. Uh, Their families and their Christian congregations would stand alongside them and would look at the congregation and they would say, we trust this man. In my early years here, this congregation needed strengthening. There were 20 and more members who never attended. And I had to visit them. And they had to tell them, well, they, they, they couldn't continue in membership in this church if they never regularly worshipped in this church or in another church. And most of them were upset. And some of them said to me, you've just arrived here in Aberystwyth. We've lived in the town for years. And we've had connections with Alfred Place. You've only had connections with it a couple of years. And more than that, they said, in a few years, you'll move on. And you'll go to another church. And then you'll leave behind a divided and a smaller congregation damaged by your loveless attitude. They didn't realize that I was here for the long haul. They didn't believe that the Bible said, don't neglect the assembling of yourselves together. The Bible says that. They didn't believe my message They didn't believe in me. So, to believe in a person is to trust that person, is to listen to that person, is to follow that person, is to say, you know, Jeff's right about this, that it's ridiculous to say I believe in God and I'm a member of his church, but I never want to worship him, ever on Sundays. 
I must trust my pastor and not delude myself that all is well between God and me. Well, I never worship him. And soon, what am I facing but an open-ended encounter with God? A God I've snubbed, a God I've avoided, a God I never sing to or pray to or worship with other people who believe in him. And my calling is to prepare you, all of you, to meet God. Genuine saving faith is a, a giving of ourselves, of all we are, to all that God is. It means turning over our lives to him. Trust in God, Jesus says, and trust also in me. And that's genuine faith. When Jesus says, don't do something, we don't do it. When Jesus says, do this, we do it. My friend John Framey was in a, a church, and they always ended Sunday school, he told me, by singing, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And John says, I believe those words still. Trust is faith in action. Now, you know, it's over 40 years since uh, Philippe Petit uh, walked between the, the twin towers that were bombed in 9-11 on, uh, in Manhattan. It was an extraordinary feat. And um, it's just been made a, a docu drama now in 3D. And the stunt was in the great tradition of tightropers that went back to the Victorian period and Blondin. And Blondin was the greatest of all tightrope walkers. Uh, and he walked across a wire over the Niagara Falls. And vast crowds came to see him and bookies were there. And he walked over the water and the spray, leaning against the wind. He made the crossing a number of times. He made the crossing carrying a man on his back. He made uh, the crossing pushing a man in a wheelbarrow. And each time he succeeded. And many people bet successfully that he would cross. Now, we preachers, we use Blondin. I haven't used him for years, but I've used him. And every preacher, you've heard him being used. And they use him well. And I think it is a very helpful illustration. Uh, they ask two questions. Do you have faith that Blondin is able to do this? Is he able to do it? Push a wheelbarrow with a man inside it over the Niagara. Would you bet a small sum of money? I said, well, I'm not a betting man. That's fine. Um, yes, I would have faith in Christ. Blondin was extraordinary as a tightrope walker. He crossed the falls many, many times. And I would have faith that he's able to do it. You believe he can do it? You've been brought that far. Then there's a harder question. Do you trust him enough then to get on his back? And go across that rope carried by him or get into a wheelbarrow and be pushed over by him? And that is where faith in the ability of a person to change your life and take you across all the storms and winds that are going to confront us, the dangers that lie before us. Early marriage, having children, looking after them, going through illnesses, getting to retirement, facing death, and that Jesus can carry you through. Do you have faith that he can carry you through? You. Tonight, that he can carry you through. Trust is harder, you see, than belief, isn't it? If you'd ask Peter, um, Peter, could Jesus enable you to walk on water? Sure, Peter would say. And then one day, Peter came walking on water to Jesus, and Jesus came walking on water to Peter, and uh, he said to Peter, come to me on the water. And the winds were blowing, and the waves were mountainous. And while he looked 
of Jesus, he walked on water. But when he looked at ah, the storms and the waves and the impossibility of doing what he was doing, he began to sink and a hand came and lifted him and delivered him. What is sincere faith? Faith that lives in us. That's what he says. It lived in Lois and it lived in Eunice. And Paul was persuaded that it was a living faith in Timothy. And I've told you, firstly, it begins with a knowledge of the Jesus of the Bible. And secondly, it goes on to say, this this guy's for real. This is a historical figure. He said these things. He did these things. Who is this man that the winds and waves obey him? Who is this man who rose from the dead? This is the Son of God. And then thirdly, it's an entrusting of myself to this Jesus as he invites me to come to him. And I respond. It's a movement of my heart and my mind and all that I am as the Holy Spirit then persuades me and enables me and draws me and joins me to Jesus Christ. From now on, I'm going to follow him. I'm going to be a Christian. In my life, Jesus Christ is going to reign. He's going to be my teacher. And when I stand before God and I say to God, God says, why should I let you into my heaven? Because of Jesus. Because of how he lived and what he's done for me. Not anything I've done myself. I'm not going to say, well, because I was 50 years a preacher. Come on. Many, many regrets in every time I preached. And no regrets about the life and the death and the ascension and the reign and the love of Jesus Christ. That's the most real thing. Come out of your shadow lands then. Come into the bright reality of the one who says, I'm the light of the world. And walk in that light from now on with him, hand in hand with him, with his Savior. Salvation is trusting in Jesus, holding on to him through the storms. Let's pray together. We ask the Heavenly Father to bless thy word to us tonight. and Oh, give us true saving faith. Give us more knowledge and more conviction that it's true. And then move us to trust in thee. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Oh Lord, help everyone here tonight who's not yet a Christian. The youngest, the oldest, the worst sinner, the best man and woman to run from their sins and trust in Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen.